The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. How would you like to impact the environment in a positive way with your garden? In this episode, we talk with Dr. Andy Pulte about having fun and succeeding in a dynamic, ecological, vibrant garden. Andy grew up in the nursery industry in Grand Island, Nebraska. He received his Ph.D. in plant sciences from the University of Tennessee. He is now on the faculty in the same department teaching, advising, and coordinating UT's plant sciences undergraduate program. You will find him feeding his passion for people and plants by traveling extensively and speaking regularly. Over his career, he has contributed to a variety of gardening publications and hosted a garden radio show. Andy is also an internationally certified arborist. Andy gardens with his family in a residential community in North Knoxville, Tennessee, where he seeks out unusual plants for his home garden to inspire questions from those who visit. This is episode 100, Ecological Gardening, with Dr. Andy Pulte on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Andy, what is ecological gardening? Really at its core, ecological gardening or eco-gardening is gardening with an awareness of how we're impacting the environment around us, uh, how we're stewarding things like pollinators and how we are helping filter rainwater. All the things that we can do to impact the environment in a positive way in our own home landscapes and how we can lessen our footprint just in general through chemical use, power equipment use, like how can we put all this together? and at least have pockets of our garden that are more ecologically friendly, have a lesser footprint in the environment, but also that we can have fun with, uh, gardens that are ecologically vibrant, that are dynamic, that we really enjoy being around and interacting with as gardeners. I've heard the term rewilding. Is that the same as ecological gardening, or is that a totally different concept? Glad you asked that. I really break it down when I talk to people about this in a couple different subsets. And first off, a gardener may hear this term, new perennial movement. They may hear these things, something like Dutch wave. These gardens, it has a heavy use of herbaceous perennials in the landscape. It can be done in a variety of different ways. And there's a lot of great landscape architects, landscape designers out there in the world that are doing this new perennial movement. American Wave, these different types of herbaceous, heavy perennial gardens, and they're doing great jobs. But then there's also this other large-scale rewilding movement where we're talking about the conservation of large swaths of land, the reintroduction of large carnivores, big megafauna, down to little fauna as well. 
know there's two big sides of it, but I think that those two things come together, kind of this whole horticulture side of new perennial movement and these ideas of conservation and protection of wild spaces even goes down to what we do in our national park system really come together when we're talking about the homeowner into concept that I just like to call it ecological gardening a little bit of thoughtfulness about our practices in our own home landscapes so you're marrying the best of those two worlds yeah I think that's a good way to put it I think with everything we do don't we want to cherry pick the best ideas the things that work from all these kind of ideas and put them together to something that works for our own home landscapes because we also have to make these livable spaces right Large-scale rewilding in an urban environment, all those concepts are not going to work. And some of these examples that we see in commercial plantings or large parks of this new perennial movement, these big, big swaths of perennials, sometimes that doesn't always work in our own home landscapes either. And where can we kind of cherry-pick these very best ideas and put them together in something that works for a livable space in our own home landscape? Why don't we just let nature reclaim the land around our homes and just call that eco-gardening? You know, that's a good question. So, I mean, I'll, I'll repeat your question just because I think it's a good one, is why don't we just stop mowing our grass? I think what people say is, well, I'm going to become an ecological gardener. I'm going to stop mowing my grass. And there were some early ideas of that. That kind of became popular in the 90s, kind of a back-to-nature type movement. I want to bring in this idea that just because these are maybe a little bit wilder gardens doesn't mean that they're not managed spaces. To become ecologically vibrant in the space that you have around your own home landscape, it's going to be a managed space. It goes beyond just stopping managing your landscape. I think you should take cues from the things that are around you. One thing that I've done is I've gone back to my county aerial photograph system that I have access to in my county in Knoxville, Tennessee. I've looked at historical aerial photos of my land where I garden, which is a small residential lot in Knoxville, Tennessee, just north of town. I kind of looked at those agricultural roots and what that land looked like, thought about that as part of the process. Before there were ever people here, it was a mix of prairie systems and wooded systems. I look at the edges of those systems as I think about my own home landscape and what can I learn and glean from those edge environments, as you might call them. If I just let my residential lawn go wild or my residential landscape go wild, I don't think in the end it would be very ecologically vibrant. It would just be tall grass. My current shrubs, bigger than they are now, or there would be a lot of horticultural weeds that have moved in that I've brought in or my neighbors have brought in. When we think about your question, I think about Is that an ecologically vibrant landscape? What would be the results of that? And a lot of times I think that the general public might look at wild landscape and they think that they planted this and then they walked away from it. That's not the case. And that's not what we're calling anyone to is to plant something and forget it. There's no such thing as a no maintenance landscape. And I think that you probably know that there's there's no landscapes that are completely no maintenance. As I look at my neighbors and some of the residential landscapes that I interact with, people are always asking for I want no maintenance. Well, then we just better concrete to the foundation then. You'll have to maintain the concrete through power washing. There's no such thing as a no maintenance landscape. There is lower footprint landscaping and some of these landscapes that are ecologically friendly. There may be less interaction with it, but there's definitely management that goes on. You said your landscape before, looking back in history, was possibly a prairie. And I think of prairies being out in the mid-United States. I never think of prairies being in the southeast. Could you expand on that a little bit? Oh, yeah. This is probably true. Actually, I'm from Nebraska, and so I'm kind of from the prairie zone, the area that they call the Great Plains, 
which was 100% tall grass prairie where I grew up. When I thought about the eastern United States, I've lived in Knoxville for 17 or 18 years. But when I thought about the eastern United States, I really thought that a squirrel could get on top of a tree and hop on the top of a tree all the way till the Mississippi River. That there was a completely unbroken forest before settlement. But that absolutely was not the case. Where I'm from in Middle Tennessee, through Georgia, there were huge swaths of prairie. We had elk and buffalo in Middle Tennessee. A lot of the first settlers that encountered our land in Middle Tennessee saw vast prairies that were maintained by fire, large ruminant animals like buffalo and elk. That's actually one of the most endangered ecosystems that we have in the southeastern United States. One of it has to do with there's not fire like there would have been before settlement in this area. We suppress fire. That's been the big call for years and years and years is to suppress fire. We all want to save our structures and we all want to be in livable environments. But due to that suppression of fire, we've actually become more forested in the southeastern United States than we would have in a lot of cases. There's a great thing that could look up. It's called the Southeastern Grassland Initiative, where they're talking about restoring a lot of these native ecosystems of prairies throughout the southeastern United States. What they find in some of those remnant prairies that we still have in the southeastern United States is that those are some of the most biologically diverse ecosystems that we have in all of the southeastern United States. You can find more species per, let's say, square yard in some of those places than much of our forests. They're very biologically diverse, and they're hosting pollinators and bird species and insect species and are a vibrant part of our ecosystem here in the southeastern United States. Think about, is there something that I can recreate in my own home landscape that kind of gives homage to that southeastern prairie? And think about prairie, we think grass, but it's not always grass. There are forbs in there, herbaceous perennials, and we've got a lot of great uh, herbaceous perennials that are native to the southeastern United States. When I talk about recreation of some of these ecosystems, and we talk about ecological gardening, I often tell people that, you know, we're not trying to completely recreate these southeastern grassland prairies. Actually, we're creating a fantasy version of a lot of these landscapes because we want them to be pretty. We want them to be beautiful. We want them to be livable. When I design a landscape like this or a part of a landscape like this, I'm not designing a copy of these prairie systems that are in the southeastern United States. I'm designing a fantasy version of that because that's what we want. We want landscapes that are vibrant at every time of the year, right? That there's something going on in every second of the year. And so if that's our topic is ecological gardening, I think about creating fantasy versions of some of these highly biologically diverse ecosystems that we have, in particular in the southeastern United States. Are there places that we can go and see some of these natural prairies that still exist? I know that there's some in Georgia, but the ones I've visited have been here in Tennessee. I encourage people to Google cedar glades in Tennessee. or uh, There are several state parks where they've really kind of held these tightly, where you can go and see them at different times of year. But seek them out in your own county, if, if it's possible, wherever you're listening to this. If you're listening in the southeast, there's going to be remnants of some of these prairies. Look up the Southeastern Grassland Initiative. Seek out in your own county, seek out in your own state some of these places. You may have to travel just a little bit. I think it can give you some insight into maybe what you want to create into your own home landscape. Where do we start in bringing ecological gardening home to our gardens? Like many people who are listening to this, I live in a subdivision. At the heart of most of the landscapes I see, there's nothing wrong with those landscapes. There are people that are trying their best in a lot of cases to have something nice to look at. 
If you hear this and you say, you know what, I'm going to add something to my landscape that's a little bit different than what my neighbors have. I'm going to add something that maybe benefits a bird or a butterfly or a bee or, or, or whatever you're passionate about. You can start really small. Maybe you've got a low spot in your landscape and you think about, well, maybe I'm going to add a rain garden here. I'm going to have the backbone of that be native plants. That could be somewhere to start. The way I started at my own house is I live on a corner lot. On the very corner of the lot, I intentionally planted this little, what I call a pocket prairie. It's got all sorts of different plants in it, native and non-native. The backbone is of native plants. I was thinking about four-season interest. For me, this was experiment. A lot of people who are listening, we need to make sure that they know that it is okay to experiment. You don't have to be 100% get it right exactly from the very beginning. This idea that we can experiment within our own gardens, within our own landscapes, knowing that there's going to be winners in the landscape, there's going to be losers in the landscape. Then we move on and we get better at what we do. We get better at our craft. We get better at our experiment. I planted this little tiny pocket prairie on the corner of my landscape. Its backbone is a Mullenbergia, Capillaris, uh, one called White Cloud, the white version that I just love kind of the backbone. There's a non-native bulb underneath it. Then on the top, there's a lot of native plants. I fully expect, as I watch that over the years, that that little corner that I did is going to be dynamic and it's going to change. That maybe not every plant that I put there is still going to be there in five years. Well, that's going to create opportunity for me to try something new. It's going to create opportunity for me to see what really works, to see the winners and the losers in that system. Maybe over time, I might expand that little area as I find out what works and what I get personally excited about. We got to be excited about it. It's got to be something that we enjoy. I'm not advocating for anyone to go necessarily and kill every inch of turf grass in your lawn and plant it all in prairie. Expect some endangered bird to come (laughs) and nest in your front yard. Uh, Maybe some of you, that would be for you. But for most people, that's not the reality that they live in. I've got two children in my life, age 10 and 12. They're not really that small anymore, but I need turf grass 100% for recreation. That's an important part of my landscape. It's the carpet that makes the rest of my landscape really look good. I've started by creating these little pocket gardens uh, where they're more on the ecological gardening side. They're on the edges of my landscape too in a lot of cases. A neighbor might walk by and they're walking their dog and they say, what is that? What are you doing here? And that creates community. Uh, It creates kind of an invitation to talk about some of these things. Start small. Maybe this year as we go into spring, you think about, I'm going to research and I'm going to find a couple plants to add to my landscape that are good for butterflies. People are excited about butterflies. Maybe the idea is monarchs. They need a place to rest as they migrate towards Mexico. So maybe you plant something that's good for them this year. You and I were at a great talk in Atlanta about bumblebees, right? Maybe I do a little bit of research. How can I garden in a way that really is kind of bumblebee? That's the one thing that you've seen in your garden and you're excited about it. So how can I create that little habitat for them? And hopefully maybe they might come and see us. Uh, My two young boys, they love bluebirds. That's their favorite thing. And so one thing, we create a little garden and we put a bluebird box there to help them nest. It's baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. Well, in the first baby step soil, do we need to come up with special amendments to do that? I know some of the larger scale ones, they all seem like their success is based on this specialty plant mix they put together for these big, huge gardens. Does that need to be brought home to our home gardens? You know, what's interesting is that a lot of the newer large-scale installations of fantasy prairie-like systems, new perennial movement, that kind of thing that you see at some of our big municipalities, in some cases, I want you to know that they are amending the soil to make it not as good, is the way I would put it, to actually reduce the nutrients in that soil. 
You might do that through not reducing the biological activity in that soil, right? They're adding things like expanded shale that might have a lot of surface area on it where we're seeing good bacteria and different things that are forming in there that are good for the roots. But in a lot of cases, they're making that soil leaner in nature. What I mean by that is it's not as full of organic matter. So you plant these systems. You think about the soil a little bit. Really hospitable garden soil tends to lead to invaders, potentially in a couple different ways. Number one, the more aggressive plants that you plant yourself can take over too quickly and crowd out some of the other desirable species that you put into these systems. And then number two, weeds, right? You create a hospitable environment for weeds. They're going to feel right at home and they're going to get in there and try to outcompete all the other plants that you spent money on that, that you planted. And so not a big advocate of thinking about this. I'm going to create a new perennial bed. In my own home landscape, in a lot of spaces, I'm not getting in there and tilling the soil up with six inches of compost into that system. And the reason is that environment is just too hospitable now. Some of these native plants, some of these tough non-native plants that we might add into these ecosystems, they can handle lean soil. Especially if you think about a prairie plant, they can handle very lean soil. What happens when you put them into the most hospitable environment imaginable? Plenty of water, plenty of organic matter. Maybe you're adding additional nutrients. Well, I'm going to grow like crazy. I'm just going to grow, 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 grow. If you're a grass, you're going to get so tall, you're going to flop all over. Well, that's not the look that we necessarily want. So by leaning the soil down whenever possible, you can actually invite plants to grow a little bit slower, slow down the pressure from outside weeds. Maybe you might find it a little bit more enjoyable. Now we have to take a little bit of a different time stamp on this one. We have to think, well, things are not going to grow quite as well. We think about watering only when it's absolutely necessary because we don't want the plants in these systems to just grow like gangbusters. Then maybe that's okay for my hosta garden. It's okay for you to have a hosta garden if that's something that you're interested in. Maybe I want good organic matter. Maybe I want plenty of water. If you're talking about this ecological gardening type systems, it's your advantage to have a lean garden soil. To your point, I wouldn't recommend six inches of compost on top of anything for a system like this. Well, I'm thinking about my own particular soil here, and I find out a lot of people have clay soils, and I have clay soils, and I'm surprised in all the interviews that I do that how many people actually have clay soils across the continent. Is there a formula for clay if we're not amending it that we need to add to that to have better success? Just because it's clay soil doesn't mean it's not a nutrient-rich soil, right? A lot of our clay soils are very nutrient-rich. You may not want to be planting into bricks. You get into there, you're in an urban landscape where all the topsoil has been scraped off and you're kind of down to this hard pan, red clay or whatever it is. Do I want to be planting into that? Well, maybe. I don't know. It depends on kind of the situation and the plants that I'm planting. But in that case, you know, I might think about, uh, is there some sort of organic amendment that I could add into there to bust it up just a little bit? I think that composted cotton bowls tend to break up clay soil very well if it's something that you're very concerned with, that it's very hard pan. If it's pliable and if it's workable, there's not a a big reason to add huge amount of amendments. Now, you might go over the top of it with a hardwood mulch of some kind, especially at the very beginning, keep weeds down. You'll be adding organic matter to that. And so in some cases, you might think about mulching first. So you create a big bed, you mulch first, and then you kind of plant right through it. You're mixing it up a little bit, but you're not stirring up the whole mess of the soil bed. It's a case-by-case basis. Yeah, you should get to know your soil a little bit. That's for sure. Could we get into what type of plants we're looking at? Let's say that I'm a listener and I thought, well, this idea that I might create a little five-by-five pocket prairie in my own home landscape. Like, how would I even get started with that? I would start with plants that I already like and that I'm already aware of. 
you know, you're listening to this podcast, you probably know some plants already, right? I think that there definitely should be a grass component of some kind. Just because the word prairie is in there doesn't mean it has to be the largest component of it. I think there definitely should be some grasses. I would start to think about native plants that I like, maybe some non-native plants that I like. The backbone should probably be native plants, and that'll probably help you out to be successful. Then I would literally make a collage of some kind and look at those plants. And the first thing I'm going to ask myself is, do I have different sizes and textures represented within this collage? For me, the texture is the most important. Do I have big, bold foliage? Do I have kind of medium texture foliage? Do I have wispy foliage, really fine textured foliage? How do these things all work together? I've done this before, like a fourth grader. I've made a collage of plants, and I look at those things, and I do it on my computer. Look at it, I'm like, man, Andy, you just created a landscape that's all fine texture. You need to add in some bolder textures into that. And so that's where I would start. Another good rule of thumb, even if you were designing a little pocket prairie, is I think about plants, what shapes of plants work together? If you put a plant that's kind of an upright guy, and you put kind of a round one, and you add a a low-to-the-ground one, there's kind of these three basic shapes of upright, kind of round in the middle, and then low-growing, that combination, plus good contrast and texture, it's going to work almost every time. It's just really the basics of it all is, you know, tall guy, fat guy, low to the ground guy, you put those things together, they've got different textures, you're going to be successful. Maybe I think about an upright grass, like Panic of North Wind, which is a very upright switchgrass. Maybe I'm thinking about an aster that kind of has a rounded habit. And then maybe I'm thinking about another full sun ground cover that's kind of the shoes and the socks. Maybe Amsonia Blue Ice, a little short Amsonia that kind of weaves its way through all of that. I'm just looking at those different things. Do I have different colors? Do I have different textures? Then I add kind of the frosting on top of that where I start to think about, oh, do I have something going on from January through December through the whole course of the year? Do I have something to look at? Now, we have to get into our consciousness a little bit that I'm also appreciating the aesthetics of decay. I'm appreciating the form of plants in the wintertime. Maybe I've got little bulbs underneath. Uh, Maybe I've got galanthus that starts off right now this time of year, and that's layered with daffodils. And that's just that continues to layer on top of each other until my grasses come along. And then kind of goes all back the other way where now my asters come on, that kind of thing. We think about the arc of the season along with that thing. So, you know, just as a recap, I'm I'm looking at the form of the plant. Do I have upright plants? Do I have middle ground plants? Do I have low-growing plants in my landscape? Do I have different textures? Step three is, do things flow through the entire season where I've got something to look at through the entire season? So we need to appreciate decay in this process. That's right. It's amazing when you start to notice, right? I think that the longer you're a gardener, the more you notice. Most people who garden are good at paying attention, right? They pay attention to the plants. I'm continuously getting emails, what's wrong with this? Or the other thing, is this okay that I did this? A lot of times these emails are from people who are not really noticing their gardens until it's too late. Good gardener is always looking at their garden, always noticing things in their garden, always appreciating the things in their garden. I think about a walk I took just yesterday in my garden. I was just kind of just looking at uh, the form of uh, these Annabelle hydrangeas that I had out there. I was just looking at the kind of decaying mop tops that were on top of them. I mean, it's still beautiful. It's brown, but it's beautiful. 
You know, even just looking at the frost on some of my leaf piles, it's beautiful. You know, we continue to notice, we continue to appreciate every part of the year. So when I say, is there something good to look at every time of the year? That doesn't mean blooming. Is there something to notice every time of the year? I'm noticing the twigs and the stems and the buds. As I walked by a maple today, I was noticing how the buds were swelling. Yesterday, I noticed red maples here. They're in full bloom right now. I'm noticing that even though the blooms are quite discreet, right? You have to notice them. Think about those plants and their individual characteristics. Is there something going on throughout the entire year, I would say? Do you believe ecological gardening will become a dominant gardening style in your time? I think that there's going to be a a place for it. I think it's going to continue to increase. Am I going to see that instead of, and I'm not necessarily advocating for this, I'm not necessarily advocating that at the end of my life that nobody's got turf grass in their front yard, that it's just unending prairie from one driveway to the next. I'm not necessarily advocating for that. And the reason is that these are all our spaces. These are all spaces that we live in, and they all have to be livable spaces for what we do. What I hope and really kind of pray that will be more in people's conscious is that in every one of our landscapes, we have an opportunity, that we've got an opportunity for helping out, uh, for creation care, uh, however you want to look at it, to be stewards of our land. We want to do it in the best way possible. Even my neighbors who have three shrubs and a sea of turf grass, they want to do good things for the environment. They want to be educated on how they can do things better. They're doing what they've got time for. Will it become the, the dominant garden style in the future? Hopefully in our municipalities and our parks that we're going to see this dominate in a lot of ways in our own home landscapes. I hope that we see everyone doing something. What do you think the hurdles are for being adapted more by the homeowner? Education is number one. As we see more examples in our parks, in our municipalities, in our medians of our major roadways and byways, I think that more people are going to get interested in it. And so right now, one of the hurdles is our cities, our municipalities adopting some of these ways of knowing some of these garden practices as large municipalities. And my hope is that as they do that, as funding becomes available and they start to recognize this as something that they actually can maintain, that's the big hurdle for our municipalities is that they look a lot of these landscapes and they say, we, we can't maintain that. That's impossible for us to maintain. I don't believe that's the case. I think that uh, we do hard things every day. All of us learn something new every day. Cities and municipalities can learn how to do new things. As our homeowners see our cities adopt some of these new ways, I think they're going to get more interested in it. And so that's going to be the barrier first, I think, for our cities to get uh, more interested in it, for homeowners to have access to ready education about some of these things. I think you're going to see some more adoption. I really do. I know in my city, I think the attitude is if we can't mow it, we're not going to grow it. I can see. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. It seems to be a challenge and I guess a knowledge of how to actually maintain it. And I would just interject here too, is that the way that we look at careers in horticulture needs to also come along at the same time. A lot of our, and I'm not picking on cities and municipalities. I'm not picking on big institutions that maintain big landscapes. We really do need to look at horticulture and the ability to maintain these landscapes as a high-order skill. This is an art and a science, and those two things come together, uh, and we need to pay the people a living wage who maintain these landscapes. One of the barriers that we see is, as me, that's what I do. I teach undergraduates and graduate students here at the University of Tennessee how to create these landscapes, but then I want them to go out and be able to earn a living wage 
to support a family, to be happy, healthy in their career. We need to continue to elevate how we see the skill that it takes, the knowledge that it takes uh, to maintain some of these landscapes as well. There's got to be a side of it where everybody can do it. Uh, But then there's got to be a side that say to do this at the highest level possible. We have to have the right people with the right expertise, and we need to pay them the way that they deserve to be paid. They need to make more than the people at the Chick-fil-A. They need to have benefits in their job. We advocate for that for our city workers, for the people who work at big municipalities who maintain these high-impact landscapes. Are you finding that more students are becoming interested in plants, horticulture, and the natural world? After COVID, we actually have seen quite an influx of students into our program. I would say that a lot of them do not have the long-term exposure in a lot of cases to some of the things that I was blessed to be able to be exposed to when I was their age. They know that they like plants, right? Maybe they started growing houseplants during the pandemic. Maybe their friend gave them a plant. They got interested in it. They started collecting houseplants. Um, Maybe during the pandemic, they started a vegetable garden with their family, and that got them interested in plants. I'm seeing a lot of students that are coming to me right now. I say, well, what do you want to do? And they say, well, I like plants. They don't have the definition yet of what that means and how that can translate into a career. And That's the part where I come in, right, where I hopefully can help them just a little bit. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of students right now where the baseline is, I like plants. I recognize that this is an important part of our food system, our fiber system, uh, and also creating an environment that is good for our mental health. I like to be around beautiful things. This discipline is both an art and a science, and it comes together in the middle. But that's where they start. I like plants. In part, it's my job to expose them to these concepts, ecological gardening design. How can I help the environment through my career? How can I make things more beautiful through my career? How can I make discoveries in science through my career? Yeah, I'm excited for our future. I'm excited for the students that we see coming on board. If you've got an opportunity to support the education of one of those students, you know, somebody listening to this podcast that, that maybe would be able to invite some, a young student who doesn't know anything into an internship opportunity. Maybe you own a business. Maybe you garden extensively at your house. You know, a student's interested in plants, invite them into your world. Kind of help them along in that process. How do you think someone becomes a gardener? It's one that I pondered quite a bit and looked at a lot of the research that's involved in that. Well, how does someone become a gardener? How does someone become interested in the natural world? Really, we've done a lot of this research here at the University of Tennessee, and I'm proud of that. What we really know from the science is that typically before the age of about nine, there's some sort of experience that happens that gets young people interested in the natural world. Why is that? Is your influences, they strongly shift typically from your parents, your caregivers, to your peers. And so what we see really is that people who are involved in gardening programs at a public garden, they go hiking with their parents, they garden with their parents, they grow a tomato with their parents, they are involved in raking leaves with their parents. Anything that involves the natural world, they go to a a science museum and learn about uh, how plants work. It tends that those people who have that exposure before the age of nine have a greater bend towards a career in the natural sciences. Well, you know, that can mean a lot of different things. It doesn't just mean gardening. It means a career in the natural sciences. Maybe they want to become a park ranger. Maybe they want to be a biologist. Maybe they want to work in a public garden. Maybe they want to work in the green industry as a whole. So important. I kind of start into a lot of the talks I give talking about this. If you've got little hands in your life, it's critically important for the the whole planet uh, to expose them to the natural world in some way. That typically happens before nine years of age. It's all of our responsibility to be a part of that. When I'm out gardening, 
in my own home landscape. I like to interact with someone who's on a walk with their young kid. Last year it was, I had quite a good crop of monarch caterpillars. Some young toddlers walked by. I said, come over here and look at this. Do you know what this turns into? Every one of us will have an opportunity. If we're a gardener, we'll have an opportunity to bring someone with little hands into our life. I certainly encourage you to do that. Well, what's one of your earliest garden memories? I grew up actually kind of immersed into the gardening world. I grew up in a family nursery business. My dad at that point had an acre of greenhouses under glass. He had four-season retail, wholesale, independent garden center. So really, I was immersed in it from filling the flats for the bedding plants to running around the nursery. So I actually literally grew up in a greenhouse. My family home was adjacent to this big range of greenhouses my family had. All of my early, early memories that, that deal with plants kind of revolve around kind of those spaces. The greenhouse business, there's some tough parts to it. I always say the thing about having a retail greenhouse is that just like cows, right next door to my house was a dairy farm. And I always say, well, the cows didn't know it was Christmas, right? The plants didn't know it was Christmas. It's every day. I knew that I liked plants. I wasn't attracted as much to that lifestyle of full-time retail wholesale growing. Kind of fell in love with the education part of it. I fell in love with, uh, in particular, the public garden part of things. What we do in our public sphere with plants. And I often tell people, I say, you're going to see more plants than any other organism in your entire life when they impact you mentally, physically, spiritually in a lot of different ways. I kind of took that to heart a little bit. And so that's why I love uh, to teach students about plants, uh, to kind of bring them into the world of gardening. Hopefully they have meaningful careers in it. I think a lot of people in our industry, just in general, they're in it because they love it. They weren't forced into it. They're in it because they love it. I oftentimes tell a student, I said, you're going to spend a lot of time at work in your adult life. It'd be nice if you enjoyed what you did. I enjoy what I do. Talk about public gardens, and you oversee an arboretum. Could you tell us about that? I've got a full-time teaching appointment here at the University of Tennessee, but another part of my job is I'm the executive director of one of the four sites of the State Botanical Garden of Tennessee, and that's called the University of Tennessee Gay Top Arboretum and Education Center. And that's the newest site of the State Botanical Garden of Tennessee, and we're open right now by special appointment. That can happen through university classes. We use that as a site for everything from our sculpture classes here at the University of Tennessee to my plant ID classes. I teach a a class on public garden management. We use that as a living laboratory as well for our classes. Uh, But we're also open certain days throughout the year. I, I don't know if many of your listeners will know, but here in Knoxville, we've got something called the Dogwood Arts Festival. That celebrates our native dogwoods in April. People drive around and see all the dogwoods in bloom. People are encouraged to plant dogwoods along their streets. We've actually got painted lines on our streets here in Knoxville where they're designated as dogwood trails, which is all kind of neat. Also, there's open gardens. That would be very interesting to people who are listening. Actually, throughout the year, there's actually some winter gardens open. In particular, in the month of April in Knoxville, there are several private gardens that are open to the public. And some of them, man, they are outstanding. Sometimes they rotate, and then there's some standard ones as well. April is a great time to visit Knoxville, Tennessee, see the dogwoods in bloom, but also visit some of the open gardens. How you can get more information on that is get on Google and put in Dogwood Arts uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and you're going to find open gardens. You're going to find out all the information about that. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? This is my world. I teach plant identification. That's one of my main things I do in my job. I would think that the homeowner in particular who is trying to design, build, or improve their own home landscape, this is what I would say. Pick 12 plants, learn everything you possibly can about those 12 plants. What kind of growing conditions do they take? When do they bloom? 
What kind of soil do they like? You should pick plants that you've heard of before. Can you think of 12 plants and write them down? Well, then research those 12 plants. You might not use all those 12 plants. They might just be the 12 plants that you thought of, right? Because you heard someone say the word daylily once. You heard someone say peony once. You heard someone say canna once. You heard someone say hosta once, right? Take the time to learn everything you can about them. Learn their scientific name. Learn what their scientific name means. Scientific names of plants, they tell you about that plant, right? Juniperus horizontalis, what does it tell you? Well, this is a low-growing plant. That would be a good beginning of knowledge. Really, to backtrack to your actual question is think about the plants that you want. Learn everything you can about those plants before you plant them. And you're going to learn more as you become more a keen gardener. You're going to learn more and more as you go along. Think about some of the plants you already know and learn everything you can about them. There's things that I could probably learn about daylilies that I don't know, right? One of the most common plants that I see, and I teach plant ID, there's probably things that I could learn more about. So that's where I would start. Uh, So maybe not do anything different, but uh, maybe on the front end, I would say research, research, research. Uh, Think about these plants, how they'll play together when you put them in your landscape. What are you researching now? Uh, well, you know, I, I have a, uh, an ornamental plant breeding program that I do here at the University of Tennessee. That involves a variety of different plants. I work quite a bit with, uh, in particular, southeastern native hibiscus species, trying to bring that into the ornamental garden a little bit more. And so that's kind of one of my main interests is kind of our southern native species of hibiscus grow. Some of them are rare and endangered plants, ones that only are really found in very, very small ecosystems. And they can have very nice ornamental characteristics. I do work with hibiscus quite a bit. I work with a plant called kufia, which is often called cigar plant, but a variety of little pet projects I've got going on, uh, hopefully to bring some new plants to the market at some point. What's a garden myth you'd like to smash? <laughs> I think about mulch quite a bit. There's been so many research studies in the last 10 years about types of mulch and how they interact differently with the landscape. I think mulch is an outstanding thing. It suppresses weeds. It can be aesthetically pleasing. It reduces your need to water. What type of mulch has been kind of controversial? The research tells us that if you've got good biological activity in your soil, organic mulch, it doesn't really matter that much. Pine straw doesn't over-acidify your soil. Freshly ground wood chips doesn't steal all the nitrogen from your plants necessarily. Dyed mulch is not the end of the world, right? Now, I would tell a neighbor that I don't think they should go with that red mulch anymore, but you're doing something, right? And so kind of one of the myths that I would like to dispel is that that really, really is the stake that we should put in the ground and say, oh, it's, it's got to be this way. It's got to be triple ground hardwood mulch or, you know, or whatever it is. There are some landscapes that I'm mulching with gravel and plants are doing outstandingly well. I've got a little area that I've done, not at my own home landscape, but in a commercial landscape where it's a gravel garden, where plants are mulched with and planted directly into primarily gravel. Those plants are thriving. Uh, what myth would I would expose is you know, that, in particular with mulch, it doesn't really matter that much. Now, let's get over ourselves just a little bit. <laughs> now, keep mulch off the bases of the trees. Kick down those mulch volcanoes. Just because it is March 1st, or whatever date it is in your world right now, it doesn't mean that we automatically have to mulch either, right? Um, There's some people that I noticed in my neighborhood that said, every spring I add three inches of mulch. Well, why do you do that? Question everything, right? Like Just because it's the time of year that you mulch doesn't mean that you need to add another three inches to the tree. That's how we get mulch volcanoes, water that can't penetrate layers of mulch, right? Because we do so many things by habit and we don't question why are we doing it necessarily. 
Could you share a funny garden story with us? Some of the most fun that I have in garden is with other people. I visited public gardens and different private gardens by myself, and I never have as much fun as I do with other people. Gardens are meant to share. Gardens are meant to laugh with friends in. Gardens are meant to sit down and relax with friends. Funny garden stories, yeah, there's plenty of them. But what I want people to know is share your garden, experience gardens with other people, visit other gardens with other people, go on a trip this year. Get in the car and do a day trip to a public garden you've never been to. See other gardens. Be inspired by other gardens. Have fun with gardeners in other gardens. That's some of the most fun that I've had in the gardens is when I've shared them with other people. That's where I really find uh, joy in gardening. What's your most valuable garden mistake? Time. Time heals everything is the first thing I think of. I'm the type of person that has to kill it myself. I hate to admit some things that I've tried to grow that people said I couldn't grow. I don't know if you ever heard of Mechanopsis, the Himalayan blue poppy, which basically disintegrates into thin air when air temperature gets above 59 degrees. I've tried to grow and germinate Himalayan blue poppies in Tennessee. I've tried to grow lupines in Tennessee. I've tried to do all sorts of things that people said that you couldn't do. I am very careful with myself to tell a student in particular, you can't grow that, even though I know in my heart of hearts that I've been down that road many times. I would love for somebody to prove me wrong in a lot of cases. And so you got to be killing things in your garden as well. Push the hardiness zone boundaries. Some of the, the places that I've learned the most is through some of the things that I've killed. The list is long, long, long. Craig, you've got some good things you've killed, I'm sure, as well. Oh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm actually killing some Leland Cypress right now that I planted 30 years ago. <laughs> I didn't know at that time you weren't supposed to plant them five feet apart. Oh, there you go. You know, the plants do grow. You know, that's the one thing is that the farther you get down the gardening track, you start to be better at visualizing what the plant is going to look like in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. They look cute in a pot. You're stacking them together. The biggest mistakes, say design-wise in my garden, is I planted things too close together. Well, part of that was just out of necessity. I've only got so much space and I want every plant that's available in the planet. As I think about that is planting things too closely together, you know, just in general, is a mistake that many of us make as we kind of start our gardening journey and that we continue to make because we love plants so much. Exactly. What have you recently discovered about horticulture? This is kind of an interesting question. I've spent since Christmas of 2022 fielding questions about cold snap that we had in our area. And Craig, I don't know how far it reached you down there, but I was in Atlanta and it seemed like a lot of plants were impacted. Right before Christmas, it went from 50 degrees to zero degrees. And it might have went even colder than that at my house. Like, what happened here? Seeing so many plants that are completely brown, they're dying. We don't know for sure if they're going to come back. I spent the last month fielding questions from people wondering, what should I do about this? There's always something to learn, that there's always something new that happens. There's always a surprise in the garden. Kind of been learning as I've been going. I mean, this has never happened to me quite like this before, where we've been going along, plants were fat and happy from 50 degrees to zero degrees in a matter of hours. And what happened as the capillaries basically exploded inside of those plants? And how are the plants going to react to that over time? And so what did I learn from that situation is some of the most impacted plants throughout the state of Tennessee, and I, you know, I don't know about in Georgia, is that we had different regions of our state had different levels of drought throughout the summer. What we're seeing is that the areas that had the highest instance of drought are also having the highest instance of damage. And so we're talking about something that happened in some cases five months in advance of this freeze. Continue to learn that we're always playing this long game and things that happened 
five months ago, a year ago, can still impact plants down the line. You know, that's just kind of entered into my consciousness just a little bit is, man, you know, this, the, these plants that were in this drought, they were still suffering. Even though we had months and months of good rain for them to, to recover, they were still suffering in some way. Let's be very, very hopeful and say that this is a once-in-a-generation event. Now, I don't know if that's true, you know, as we see our, our, cli- our climate and our weather act differently, and we continue to learn about that. You know, I just continue to be reminded by plants that something that happened a year ago, two years ago, plants could still be in recovery mode from that. It's just not instantaneously. It just doesn't happen, right? It reminded me a lot of the freezes we had in the early 80s. We had some that, that just really wiped stuff out. I've heard you know, many, many stories uh, in the 80s in Knoxville, Tennessee. It got down to negative 24. My colleagues tell me stories like, we got a very large Nellie R. Stevens holly hedge in our garden. Uh, that froze down to the ground. Every crepe myrtle in Knoxville, Tennessee was frozen back down to the ground. A lot of Japanese maples were frozen back down to the ground. And so, you know, in some way, we're just reminded that, that we're not in control, right? I've had people say, with that freeze and the crepe myrtles coming back out, that that's where crepe murder started. <laughs> that's where people point me to. The continued hack back of all of our crepe myrtles. Yeah, yeah. Let's don't talk about that. I get emotionally involved when I do. <laughs> I'd like for you to complete, to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have a fluid design that's dynamic, something that I hope is changing all the time. Most of the plants, I don't hold on to them too tightly because it's a zone of experimentation. This is what I do for a living, right? You know, part of what I do for a living is recommend plants to other people. That's what I do. Recommend plants to students. I have to speak to students about individual plants and homeowners about individual plants. And that requires me to grow and kill plants. So that means that my own home landscape is dynamic. I'm trying new things, you know, all the time. I hope that my home landscape is dynamic in a lot of ways. What plant are you in love with this week? Oh, this week? It's edge-worthy a time right now throughout the southeastern United States. So I'm always in love with edge-worthy the paper plant. And if you've not grown edge-worthy this time of year, you get fragrant blooms, smell of honey just a little bit. Fortunately, because of that winter freeze, we lost a lot of the edge-worthy blooms near me. Now, I noticed when I was at the Atlanta Botanic Garden, they were just starting to come out there kind of mid-February. A lot of them had been protected. Some folks around here are showing me some of these blooms that have been protected, or at least spared. I shouldn't say protected. They were spared uh, from the frost. Mine were not spared at my own house. Yeah, I'm in lust with people sending me pictures, or maybe I see some people posting some pictures of Edgeworthy at this time of year. Always in love with it. There's probably a place for it in everybody's landscape. It is a beautiful plant. Tell us about the Plant ID program that you have going. This actually got started because of COVID. I actually banded together with a couple other professors throughout the United States to create a YouTube channel that helps students with plant ID. We're finding that people throughout the United States and, frankly, the world have been using this YouTube channel that we created to learn plant ID and to learn about plants. And they're really just little tiny three-minute videos that teach people about plants. And if you go on YouTube and you look up Plant Sleuth, at Plant Sleuth, you're going to be able to go in there and there's an introductory video on why knowing the names of plants is important and how you can start learning plant ID. And really, you can run your own plant ID course just by watching those videos on there. So I encourage people to go to YouTube, look up Plant Sleuth. There, it's a free and open resource for anybody who wants to use it. And I love to make it available to anybody who wants to learn more about plants. 
Andy, tell us how people may connect with you. The best way to get a hold of me is through the University of Tennessee Department of Plant Sciences, and you can easily find me through their websites. Also through social media, which is all at Plant Sleuth, at P-L-A-N-T-S-L-E-U-T-H, and you can find us on YouTube uh, and on Instagram. This has been Episode 100, Ecological Gardening, with Dr. Andy Pulte on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Andy. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.